0: Since your Bibles are open, if you would, would you go back a number of pages to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're going to be looking at verses 20 to 23 as we prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord. We're going to do communion this morning. While you're turning there, this is probably the greatest, one of, if not the greatest, chapter of the Bible in the sense of prayer It is an entire chapter given over. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. And I want you to think that way about prayer for a few minutes as I ask you this question. You know, what what does it do for you? Here we are. It's the first Sunday of September. We're already into the fall of 2023. I know we have a lot of young people, but trust me when I tell you, young people, the older you get, the faster time speeds up and just seems that the the weeks and the months and the years just whirled by. But the older you get, the more I think you'll appreciate this. And I pray that even as young people, young adults, as you're starting your school year and university, you will capture one of these things, which is this, the joy and the honor and the privilege of hearing someone say to you, I am praying for you. I often get asked as a pastor, would you pray, say a prayer for me? I got asked this this past week in the airport. When someone found out that I was a pastor, it seems like it's instinct for someone to say, hey pastor, would you say a prayer for me? Or reverend? Have you ever asked or said to someone, hey, can I pray for you? Very unique thing. I've got a great friend in Calgary. His name is Johnny Thiessen. That was one of the pastors I was with while I was in Calgary this past week. And he has a very unique habit, something I've asked the Lord to help me with. He, uh, whenever we go out to lunch, when we make our order and the waitress or the waiter brings us our order, he will say to them instinctively, Hey, we're about to bless our food. But before we do that, is there something that we can pray for you? It is amazing how this catches the servers off guard. But inevitably I've been with him at least a half a dozen to 10 times. And every single time after they they get over the initial uh, shock of the request, Inevitably, they will always ask us to pray for them. Some have asked us to pray for ailing family members. This past week, some, the, the dear lady, she said that their restaurant wasn't very busy and would we pray for more customers? And I have to tell you, she was a different server for the rest of the meal. Have you ever thought about the power of prayer? Can you think of someone who has prayed for you, especially when you've been in needy times? Can you think of a time when you heard prayer and it simply stayed with you when you heard someone pray? And I have people like that in my life, people that when they pray, I can't seem to shake it. One is my dad, who's my earthly hero, and I remember the quivering voice of my father, especially when I was in my young adult years as he prayed for our family. When I heard my dad cry and pray over me, and those prayers are like a warm blanket that I cling to often in my adult life. I remember a dear saint who went home to be with the Lord not too long ago. His name was Edwin Crossman. He lived to be almost 100. And I remember that man grabbing me with his shaky hands as he prayed with me and prayed over me so often as a young pastor in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. But probably beyond anyone, I remember a dear saint from my childhood out in Harbor Grace as she was dying in a hospital room and our youth group went out to kind of comfort her and we sang hymns to her and we read the scriptures to her and she let everybody go and she took me and she hugged me and held me. She was a dear friend to our family and I remember feeling those weird tingles of the awkwardness of being that close to someone who was terminally ill and she whispered something in my ear that I have never forgotten but then she held me with very weak arms and she prayed over me I often remember those moments when someone we love is dying and the hours and the days leading up to their death take on new meaning Bev and Cheryl and Janice aren't here they walked through that very experience over the last number of weeks and In the phone calls and text messages with them all, they all expressed the tenderness of those final moments with their father. As he closed his eyes here on earth and opened his eyes of faith in heaven. Isn't it true that we often pay closer attention to the words those dear ones speak and they hold their written words with tender reverence? And that's what I want you to realize as we come to this first Sunday of September and communion, that in John 17, if you've got your Bible on your phone or in your lap, you hold in your hands the words spoken by Jesus in his final hours. These are the words he prayed right before Judas would betray him with a kiss and send him to the cross. In a prayer, if you read it, that is both personal and yet powerful. It is utterly confident in its outcome. And we see not only a closeness, but we see a complete oneness between the Son of God and His heavenly Father, God the Father. And Jesus prays for His disciples and for all who will believe in Him, which means He prays for you and me. And I've said it to you all many times. John chapter 17 verse 20 is my favorite verse in the Bible. Can I read it for you? In John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus has prayed for himself in verses 1 to 5. He's prayed for the 11 disciples in 6 to 19. And now in 20 to 26, he prays for us. And here's what he prays. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the 11, as he speaks to God the Father, but he says, but also for those who will believe in me, now watch this, through their word. And here's why he prays that in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. He's going to say it a second time, that they also may be in us, and here's why, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the result of this. Then he goes on to say in verse 22, the glory that you have given me. Now watch this. I have given to them, that's the 11, that they may be one even as we are one. That's the second time he says it. Now in verse 23, I in them and you in me. Why? That they may become perfectly one. And here's the second result. So that the world may know that you have sent me. Now watch this. You write in your Bible, underline this. And he says, and love them even as you loved me." Oh, what a set of sentences. He prays this. It amazes me how beautiful and powerful a passage this is of God's holy word. And yet, what's even more shocking is how this simple set of three or four sentences is often misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied, and dare I say, even misused in the modern church. We've entered the last phase of this prayer, as I've said in verses one to five, Jesus prays for himself. In verses six to nineteen, he prays for the eleven. And don't forget that these eleven disciples, we should be able to relate to them because right here in this moment they're confused and scared and tired. A couple of them are overconfident, like Peter, and some just want to run away. The reality is in 12 to 16 hours, they're all going to face forsake Jesus they will doubt him, Jesus themselves, they'll doubt themselves, they'll doubt Jesus, and they'll even consider going back to the way things were. And yet Jesus continues to pray. And in verses 20 to 26, the four, the ending of Jesus' prayer of consecration, and I contend in verses 20 to 23, it's some of the most powerful words spoken by Jesus to God on behalf of his church ever written down for us. I put these words right up there Within the beginning, God said, let there be light. I put these words right up there with when he says that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. But let me ask you and I this this morning. When Jesus prays, when, sorry, when Jesus prays, can his prayers actually go unanswered? Can Jesus' prayers not be heard? You see, I know that you will instinctively go, no, but I actually wonder how you live your life. Is it possible for Jesus to pray anything that is not the will of God? So consider this when we read these words, and then consider how far away from God and His Word and what it means to have a living relationship with Jesus must mean. You see, If I'm being honest, it's been a long week. I left here on Monday at 6 p.m. and traveled to Calgary. Of course, there was a couple of delays because it's Air Canada. Got in late, got to my hotel, got right up, got right into meetings and was in meetings all week. Got delayed again, leaving, and got in here at 2 a.m. Saturday morning. But I've struggled greatly over the last few months, if I'm being honest. Wondering about why? Wondering why we are in such confusion in many of our churches today. If I'm being honest, if you read social media, it leaves one to ask why anyone would trust God at all. To look around and see most of what claims to be faith or religion is to discover rather bluntly that the words faith and religion are all too often two words masking for either politics, manipulation, or hypocrisy. And right as the man who once wrote, in the beginning the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece and it became a philosophy, then it moved to Rome where it became an institution, then it moved on to Europe where it became a culture, and finally it moved to North America where it became a business. And today as we look at these wonderful words of life, these words that are prayed by Jesus for us, you and I, please I beg of you, let us listen to the Bible and actually ask God's Spirit to do for us what Jesus said the Spirit would do for his disciples. You remember back what he said in chapter 16, verse 12? I still have many things to say to you, Jesus said, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, watch this, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Why? He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will give what is mine and declare it to you. So, when you read John 17, 20 to 23, listen to the words concentrate on them ask God's Spirit to guide you please don't be guilty this morning of another church service whatever your upbringing don't assume what these words mean don't simply think of what somebody else told you I'm begging of you to try and think of them in their totality of the Bible but most of all I'm asking you to say to Christ that wonderful hymn that the Gettys wrote speak Lord Ask Jesus to speak to you and show you something as we make our way to the table of the Lord. Now, notice with me, if you would, number one, Jesus prays for us to continue. The mission. If you're a note taker and you want to try and follow me, I want you to realize that the first thing you see in verses 20 and 21 is Jesus prays for us to continue the mission. Having begun his prayer with a request for his own consecration back in verses 1 to 5, Jesus continues his high priestly prayer for his disciples, but he concludes with petitions aimed specifically to at you and I, the church, the, the church Catholic in regards to around the world. He prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. How? Through their word. And if you take notes or you write in your Bible, underline through their word. If you are a Christian here this morning, you may be excited to realize that on the night of his arrest, Jesus prayed specifically for your blessing as a member of his church. You know, there's a song written, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind, and I love the well-meaningness of that. But I want to say, no, when Jesus, before he even got to the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed for me. This is what I cling to as someone who's an only child, as someone who grew up in in a very dysfunctional home, as someone who's experienced the ravages of abuse and betrayal and violence. When I grew up feeling faceless and nameless, as I grew up as a boy and I wondered if life was worth living, it was when God discovered, he showed me this verse that Jesus Christ prayed for me over 2,000 years ago. It gave me a sense of purpose and meaning and value. It diminished all of those hurts and those pains so they didn't own me because Jesus Christ has prayed for me. It was one thing to hear my dad pray for me and my mom pray for me. It was one thing to have this dear saint in Harbor Grace pray for me. But for me to know that Jesus prayed for me hmm, changed my life. J.C. Ryle wrote extensively on this passage, the old Anglican minister, and he paraphrases Jesus' words in verse 20 like this. He says, I now pray also for though all who shall believe in me through the preaching of my disciples in all future time and not for my 11 apostles only. You see, every believer needs perseverance and preservation and sanctification. But the truth is, That's why I love my Bible, because there's no human heroes, only Jesus is the hero. Every human being in the Bible is as messed up and motley as I am. And these 11 needed to hear Jesus pray this, because they were the first that were going to face the attacks of the world, and they were going to bear the brunt of the battle of the gospel. But J.C. Ryle goes on to make this amazing statement. He says, in some respects, it is more easy to be the one at the first beginnings of the church... And harder to be kept and sanctified as the church grew it would be more difficult to keep unity i don't know about you but as a kid that was raised in church reading my bible i often have thought man i think it would have been better if i just lived in the first century than if i lived in the 21st century i'd love to be around there now granted if you really think about what you're wishing for just remember some of the hygiene practices and medical supplies available in the first century. But let us, as we think about this, mark how wide was the scope of the Jesus intercessory prayer. He prayed not only for the present, but for future believers. So it should be with our prayers, isn't it? Think about that when you pray. Can we not pray and look forward and pray for believers yet to be born? Though we may not look back and pray for believers who are dead, and it's interesting to me, sometimes I've heard people almost pray for people in their past more than they pray for people in their future. George Newton observes what an encouragement it should be to us in praying for others, praying for a child or a friend. And remember that perhaps Christ is asking him or her of God too. He here prays for those who did not yet believe, but were to believe one day. And that's why my, one of my heroes of this is a guy named George Mueller. And Calvary family, you've heard me say this, one of the greatest things about Mueller, Mueller was a wonderful pastor, and he had a gift of faith. He never, ever asked anybody for money, and built orphanages, and housed hundreds of orphans. And yet, at the end of his life, when he was on his deathbed, a skeptic came to visit him. And he said, Mueller, you had all this faith, but your brother is not saved. And Mueller said, ah, but you're confused. I am dying, my brother isn't. And after Mueller died, 15 years after George Mueller died, his brother came to Christ. How much do you want to bet that George Mueller prayed for the salvation of his brother long before it ever happened? Does that not give us faith? If Jesus can pray for future believers, why can't you and I? I'm going to confess to you, once a week, I go up to Signal Hill and I look over this city. And once a week, I pray over the 240-odd thousand souls who don't know Jesus Christ. I look up at Shea Heights and Rabbit Town and all these different places. And all the places my eyes can see. And I say, oh God, would you save men and women, young and old, in those neighborhoods? And I believe he hears me when I pray. But let me show you something. Notice in verse 20 how I told you said, look at how he says, mark the word, the word preached. That will be on you through the word preached. You see, faith comes by hearing. The church, which places sacraments above the preaching of the word, is going to have no blessing of God. If this means more to you than this means to you, we've got it backwards. This is a result of this, not the other way around. Now I need you to listen. We cannot hope to see people come to Jesus if we're not also sharing with them the message of the disciples. We are called to be witnesses. We read the Bible so we can share the Bible because God uses the Bible to save people. I had the joy of being a part of the Gideon's ministry for a lot of my time when I was in Prince Edward Island. I got to go to some of their national conferences and it was amazing to me some of the testimonies. I got to stand next to a guy that has spent 15 years in prison And he told me that he was so hardened that somebody gave him a Bible when he went to prison. And instead of reading it, he used the sheets of it to roll his cigarettes. But in the process of doing that, he started to get ill. And so the doctor told him he shouldn't smoke for a while. So instead of rolling his cigarettes, he would read the pages as he got ready to roll his cigarettes. And wouldn't you know it, he was in the Gospel of John. And so he read the Gospel of John as he rolled his cigarettes in anticipation of one day smoking them. And God, in his mercy, used the word of God to save his soul. Hmm. It's probably the only time that smoking saved a person. (laughs) We need to realize and see if Jesus prayed for you and me, then who else is Jesus praying for? How about your spouse? Or your child your brother or your sister your neighbor or your friend your co-worker or your fellow student see do you and I have the hope and joy to see how God has promised to build his church and he does it through preaching and the teaching of the Word of God now let's go further number two Jesus prays for us to be unified around the mission so he prays for us to continue the mission And then he prays for us to be unified around the the mission. And I have to be honest, this is where we enter a world of interpretation that is so confused many in the church. Because so many have weaponized these verses as a means to say, we all just need to get along and we can't judge each other. And if the church would just forget about everything that divides us and only believe in whatever the lowest common denominator is, that somehow we'll have a great church. And my response to that is, well, how's that working out for the church? You see, Christ again prayed for the oneness of the church. Did you notice it? Three times in verse 21, 22, and 23, that he's concerned about our oneness. He's concerned, obviously, about our love and our holiness and our mission. But in his finally earthly prayer, he made unity his transcending concern. But what is unity? Unity. And what exactly did Jesus mean? This is not only the burning question, but has led to some of the most hurtful attempts of so-called Christians to answer. You see, the final prayer of Jesus for the believers as a whole was that we should be one. But let's make a clear distinction between what it means and what it doesn't mean. You see, there are actually four words that we often use in our culture today when we try to explain these verses. The word unity or oneness, but sometimes people mean actually is uniformity or unanimity or union. You see, unanimity means absolute concord of opinion within a group of people. In other words, we all have to agree and think the same thing. Uniformity is complete similarity of organization or of ritual. In other words, everybody everywhere does exactly the same thing. In other words, we're all clones of each other. Even union can sound good but implies a political affiliation without necessarily including individual agreement. But you see, unity or oneness requires a oneness of inner heart and essential purpose through the possession of a common interest or a common life. And again, I love how J.C. Ryle paraphrases this. Look at verse 21. He basically rewrites it as in our vernacular. He says, Jesus was praying, I pray that both these my disciples and those who hereafter shall become my disciples may be of one mind, one doctrine, one opinion, one heart, and one practice, closely united and joined together, even as thou, Father, and I are of one mind and one will, in consequence of that inevitable union whereby thou art in me and I in you. You see, one man writes, The church of Corinth was full of every kind of error and interpersonal offense. I'm going to the United States next week, and one of the things that's fascinated me about some of the Baptist churches down there, and I know we have some Americans, and I don't mean any disrespect to our American brothers and sisters, but I do find it fascinating when I'm in the US and I see these churches named Corinth Baptist Church. And I'm very tempted every time I see one to drive in and see if the pastor's there and go, can you tell me why you named your church? Corinth Baptist Church Because either you haven't read the book of 1st Corinthians or You have and you're trying to say we're messed up. So come join us (laughs) Because if you've read 1st and 2nd Corinthians It's a messed up church But I love it what he says the church of Corinth was full of every kind of error and interpersonal offense But notice Paul never encouraged a single believer to leave because of the hurt they'd experienced Rather, he consistently brought the gospel to bear on the many matters that plagued it. Now think about this. We've learned so far that Jesus prays for his church. Paul alluded to it in his opening. That we are to be a joyful church, a holy church, a missional church, a truthful church. But J.M. Boyce makes the very important uh, point, another way of pointing to Christ's interests Is to note that all the marks of the church concern the Christians relationship to something or some person watch this Joy is the mark of the Christian in relationship to him or herself. I Have the joy of the Lord. Do you have the joy of the Lord? Holiness is the mark in relationship to God Be ye holy God says for I am holy truth is the mark in his relationship to the Bible in other words, I joyfully and, and, and wholly know where to find truth. It's in God's word. Whereas mission is the mark of his relationship or her relationship to the world. Whereas unity and the last love, which in some sense summarizes them all, we deal with the Christian's relationship to all who are likewise God's children. So joy is your relationship to yourself. Holiness is your relationship to God. God. Truth is your relationship with his word. Mission is your relationship with the world. And unity is your relationship with other Christians. Now, I'm gonna be honest, many interpretations of these verses focus so much on the oneness that Jesus actually expects from his church that often I think they're in danger of missing the point. Here's the point of the verses. Faith comes only through the preaching of the gospel. This is what happens when you get out of whack and out of balance. Friends, listen to Paul and what he tells the Romans in Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on him in whom whom they have not believed? Paul asks the obvious question. How are we going to see people come to Christ? And he says this, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news so in other words christ prays for those who will truly believe in him through the means of preaching the gospel and that's what we will be united in as one it's not about the lowest common denominator it's about the oneness of the gospel it's oneness with the father in the son and that's the ultimate goal when we think of what jesus prays here He actually is saying we are to be united as the Trinity is. But wait a second. See, here's the problem. How can you and I be as united as the Trinity is? And the answer is, we can't. So then it cannot be what he's praying. You see, you and I don't have the divine essence of God. And you see what I'm saying? This is why I want you to interact with the Bible and ask it questions. Jesus is praying that we his children would have the same unity as the trinity in regards to divine power and purpose and what's that about it means salvation we are to want what Jesus wants which is what the glory of the father what the father wants the glory of the son what the spirit wants the glory of the father and the son in salvation we want what god wants we join with god in doing the way, things the way he wants them to do not the way we think it's best Do you remember what Jesus said in John 5.19? The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So church family, listen to me. If the father and the son are one in purpose and love, then we are called to be like that as well. So unity, all this oneness, can only be between those who are truly saved. So instead of us trying to figure out how to get rid of denominationalism, Why don't we go even further back and say, are we actually dealing with saved people or not? Unity is not about perfection either. In fact, if you'll allow me to comfort us all, John 17, 21 doesn't mean we don't argue or fail that the the world would believe God sent Jesus only if we're perfect. It says that, We should love each other. Remember what he said back in John chapter 13? I love these two bookends. He says, the way you love each other proves you are my disciples. And then in this passage, he says, the way you are united to each other proves to the world that Jesus is God. But wait a second. Last time I checked, I don't love people perfectly. And I'm not unified perfectly. I make mistakes. I get proud and selfish and tired. And so do you. Even though maybe some of you didn't know that. I lovingly tell you. You're not perfect. But Mark Jones writes this so well. He says, The church is made up of redeemed sinners who despite their many failings and shortcomings, all of which will be finally dealt with by Christ, by the way, shares a oneness with each other and as beneficiaries of Christ's intercession that leads to life, glory, and vindication. So Christian unity is important. Why? Because we're supposed to show something different than the world's pursuit of unity. You see, when genuine unity is authentically demonstrated, it's irresistible. Real unity between Christians is a supernatural work and its point to a supernatural explanation. In other words, how can these people be together? It's only Jesus. Have you ever thought about the 11 disciples that are left? I really do wonder, okay, two of my favorite guys is Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. So Matthew the tax collector is a Benedict Arnold, he's a traitor, he's Jewish and works for Rome. Simon the zealot is a Jewish assassin whose whole mission in life was to kill people like Matthew. And in my sense of mission, when Jesus divides them up in Matthew chapter 10 and sets it 2 I'm convinced he said, Matthew and Simon, you guys go on the first missions trip together. Because that would mess with the minds of Israel. How does a guy that sold out his country and a guy who was willing to die for his country now say, listen, it's not about country, it's about Jesus. Tweet that today in our political polarization. I love this. Our Lord explains even further what the world perceives when there is true true unity amongst his people. He says, I am in I in them and you in me may be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me in verse 23. So one man has summarized it like this. Are you ready? And young people, I want you to listen up because this is, your, this is the world you live in today. Atheists say there is no God. Agnostics, which many of you are going to deal with when you go to school and work tomorrow or Tuesday, agnostics say, well, there might be a God. Humanists say, let's remove God and make humans God. Pornography and the sexual revolution of our day says sex is God. Greed says money is God. Government says power and knowledge is God. Pride says I am God. But the Bible says Jesus is God. And so Jesus prays, stick with the Bible. A church more at pains to be relevant to the culture than in step with the Holy Spirit is never going to be useful to God. If we abandon that stance, we lose all relevance. The Bible says amazing things about believers. And we need to see ourselves as Christ declares us to be. His justified, sanctified, called people, chosen by him, freely because of his extraordinary love, given our own weaknesses and our pathetic contribution. Rather, let's be amazed at his grace than trying to puff up and win arguments. Now let me ask you. Hmm. Can we not be unified around that reality? Think about it with me. How is the search for union and uniformity and unanimity worked out for the church? And have we ever considered the sheer weight of diversity that has existed amongst Christians from the beginning? Let me help you with this. Kent Hughes says, Christian unity is, a, is supernatural because it comes from God's nature. That unity, though, does not mean uniformity in everything. In the Trinity, there exists even a unity in diversity. Three distinct persons, yet they are one. Now think about this. What would happen if you thought we we could bring some of the Christians, great Christians of the centuries together under this roof in this room? What if we could, from the fourth century, have that great intellect, Augustine of Hippo? And then from the 10th century, we would bring Bernard of Clairvaux, Or from the 16th century, that peerless reformer, John Calvin. Or from the 17th century, that wonderful Methodist advocate of free will, John Wesley. And what along if we brought with him George Whitfield, the evangelist. And from the 19th century, that Baptist named C.H. Spurgeon. And then along from America, we also brought in D.L. Moody. And finally, we invited Billy Graham to join them just for good mix. If we gathered all these men under one st- steeple, hmm, are you ready for this? Um, we would have some trouble. We would be unable. One man writes to get a unanimous vote on many things. But underneath it all would be unity. And the more the men are lifted up, the more the men lifted up Christ, and the more they focused on Him, the greater their unity would be. There would be unity amidst a great diversity of style and opinion. This relationship lay in a common nature rather than an identity of minds. Jesus didn't pray for us to have absolute unanimity of mind, nor for uniformity of practice, nor for union of visible organization. But for an underlying unity, Christ's prayer for unity does not mean we should all be the same, though many Christians mistakenly assume that. Too many of us think that believers should be just like them. We need to carry the same Bible, read the same books, promote the same styles, educate their children in the same way, have the same likes and dislikes. That's, that's the Borg from Star Trek. Yeah, so some of you geeks just laughed out loud and you know what I'm talking about. See we're not called to be Christian clones. In fact. The insistence that others be just like us is one of the most disunifying forces in the church of Jesus Christ. It actually promotes a judgmental inflexibility that hurls people away from the church with deadly force. One of the gospel's glories is that it hollows our individuality even while bringing us into unity. Now there are different kinds of gifts, right? Remember this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? But the same spirit There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God who works all them in all men and women. The unity of this passage in which Jesus prays is a unity that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and grows as we draw nearer to God by being rooted and strengthened in his word. So any unity that says, let's not talk about the Bible is something we should run from. Any unity that says, let's read the Bible is something we should all gather around. This means that the church is to have a spiritual uh, unity involving the basic desires and the will of those participating. Paul says again in, in 1 Corinthians 12, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. And did he not make us a body? And you can't all be an eye and you can't all be a foot. And then finally, look at this. Jesus prays for us to enjoy his glory from accomplishing the mission. Now, as we think about these verses, Jesus has prayed not once, not twice, but three times for us to be unified, watch, around him, around his gospel, and around his word. But I want you to notice something with me. Look at verse 20 again. Look at those words. Don't forget what I said last week. The 11 here are only hours away from running away. Peter will deny Jesus three times and even doubt is called a ministry. Thomas will doubt Jesus rose from the dead and say unless I can touch him I won't believe it and yet Jesus prays with certainty about the future of his mission in other words these weak ordinary men and women that make up the early church Jesus will use to start his mission with, and that mission will be accomplished, how? By Jesus, through Jesus, and then passed on to us. We actually get to share his glory in trusting and obey him and his mission. So Calvary family, listen, even though we're facing adversity, even though we fight for unity, and we see both the world and Satan fight against us, we can be certain of this, there is victory in Jesus, amen? As we kick off our fall, And we're already anticipating Christmas. One of the famous passages of Christmas is Isaiah 9, 7, right? Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Calvary, you need to realize the rule of Jesus will not end, but only get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, we might experience decline in places, and truth be told, Canada and the U.S. is in one of those places right now. But don't miss what God is doing around the world. Do you know what God is doing in China, and the Middle East, just in this little country called Indonesia, which, by the way, has the third biggest population of the world? 236 million people in that country, and the gospel's Exploding. Don't be so small-minded to think that God is not working on this planet. May we see the glory of God shine more and more. Amen? The glory of Jesus as mediator is now given to us as his witnesses. And so as we seek Christian oneness, we should remember that it's Christ's work and in Christ's prayer that achieves our unity. You see, unity is a blessing that Christians have, and we enjoy it, but we must strive for it and protect it. And I love this story, and I'm done with this. Harriet Ironside relates such an experience on a train. Here's what it means. He says, the first morning on the train, he began his day by reading from his Bible, and a German woman came by and asked him what he was doing. When he told her, she said, wait, I'll go get my Bible, and we'll have it together. We can read it together. And sometime later, a Scandinavian man saw them, and he saw them reading the Bible, and he said, "Are, are you guys reading the Bible? And, well, I think I'll get mine too. And. Soon, a great number of people in their train car were taking part in a Bible study. Now, they gathered every day for the long traverse of the continent, and before long, the conductor of the train was advertising the Bible meeting to all the cars. Hymns and prayers were added, and a service was started at which Ironside would preach, and when they finally reached their destination and the passengers disembarked, the German woman who had started it all came to Henry Ironside and said, Sir, I must ask you, what denomination are you? And he answered, I belong to the same denomination that David did. What was that, she asked. I didn't know that David belonged to a denomination. And Ironside replied, I am a companion of all them that fear the Lord and keep his precepts. And the lady replied, yeah, yeah, that is a good church to belong to. Calvary family, it's very fitting that we would look at these verses considering now as we come to the table of the Lord. And I'm going to ask our folks to come now, and we're going to get ready to serve this out to you. And it would be remiss of me that I would not remind you once again that we've been prayed for by Jesus. And not only have we been prayed for by Jesus, He's still praying for us. Jesus prayed for our salvation. And he continues to live and share and rest in it. And remember that that salvation is what he prays for you and I today. So let me ask you all something. Does that make this a special, important, and significant to you? This is why we preach and practice these types of things in our church. One, Jesus commanded us to do it. But second, Jesus gave it to those who are his. So here's my question to you this morning. Do you know Jesus as Savior and as Lord? Or simply... Do you know Jesus only as someone from history who seemed to have impacted the world around him? You see, friends, do you realize that Jesus prayed for all those who would believe in him? And I want to ask you, are you sensing that gentle, loving, life-shaking call of Jesus in your heart and mind right now? Let me ask you, will you respond to him? It might be conviction that's causing you to think this way. Maybe there's sin in your life that you know is not right. Or maybe you just have that unsettled sense that something is missing. Are you here this morning and you're searching for peace and rest? Have you experienced that anger or pride of life just wearing you down? Then come to the table Give Jesus your burdens and your sin, your hurt and your anger, your bitterness. Bring him your questions and your doubts. Give them to him. He lived for you and died for you and rose again for you. Jesus is the answer to life. And he and he alone can make sense of all that's around us. He gave us not only his life but his word. And when we trust and believe in him, he gives us himself and we become the temple of God. And you don't have to confess to a man. You don't have to trust in a church denomination. You have God with you anywhere at all times. And so Christians of Calvary, do you remember that? This is our faith. This is the gospel. This is what we remind ourselves of at this table. Jesus prayed for us. We are the confirmation and the continuation of his ministry. We are to be unified around it, to glory in it, to trust in it, and give it away to anyone who will listen. So again, let me ask us as we come to the table, are we more urgent and passionate about winning arguments and about being right in our opinions of Scripture, or are we humble and truthful to acknowledge, I need to obey what I know to be true and patient and loving about things that I know are not obvious. In my province, here in Newfoundland, I I get the kick out of it because we're arguing all the time about the role of the Holy Spirit in this city and this province, and yet when was the last time any of us read Philippians 2 that says, to seek the mind of Christ and to think of others more highly than yourself? So we're going to argue about the role of the Holy Spirit when we obviously know that if we love Jesus because Jesus loves us, we're to love others more than ourselves we are not called to be clones but christians we're called to be like him you see for the broken god is the healer and for the hurting god is the comforter for the orphan god is the father for the sinner god is the savior for the lost god is the one to follow for the lonely god will never leave you or forsake you this is who we come to today